This is Big Man Tyrone, and you're about to watch the MTG Cabal cast with your hosts, Wode, Thirsty, and Reptar. Sub to us on all your podcast networks at MTG Cabal cast and YouTube. All right, guys. Welcome to the newest episode of the Cabal cast. This week, uh, we're going to do a Q&A session. We just really like these episodes. It's a good, quick way to get some information out there with less distractions and again, it's still kind of a slow time, despite the pink elephant in the room. Yes, Oro got banned. There was a massive BNR announcement today. We'll be touching on that later. Uh, in fact, there will be some mention of it in picks, I am sure. But without further ado, we have a series of about 10 questions that we're going to be asking and just discussing. So let's get started. So uh, the first question is relevant to our conversation from a couple weeks ago, the two-part episode regarding foils and specking on foils, and it is a very top-level question. You know, what do you think about the constant foil changes? And this is kind of a nebulous question because we start way back at the late 90s where we have our star foils and some textless oddities, judge promo variants, set foils, etc., and it's just this iterative process for standard sets, supplementals, judges. So, your thoughts, Thirsty? I think they should have stopped with Starfoils, which enough. I think is what everyone would probably expect me to say that's followed the cast for any amount of time. That said, I think from a vendor perspective, it is an absolute nightmare to deal with right now because you never know how many versions of a card there are you never know how many of them you're going to end up with in a new set or anything like that. And it just gets awful to deal with sorting, everything else. Yep. It's just not not good. Additionally, getting like etched foils, uh, full art foils, uh, textless foils, all this stupid variation opens up more opportunity for mistakes, print errors, drop in quality, I think it's stupid. I understand you want to improve your product. Mm -hmm. I don't think increasing chance improves your product. I think designing something, like, at this point, I, based on what foils look like now, I'd rather have the Avacyn restored foils, and that's awful. Yeah, yeah. That's my thoughts. Uh, setting aside the quality issues with foils as of late, because a lot of that can be pointed to print stock and the change in that, which affects not just foils, but everything overall. That's why cards feel different now, not just certain print runs of certain sets or certain supplementals. They all feel different than they did previously because of the yeah. card stock change, right? So there's a root problem here that just kind of cascades down into pringling your foils. So we'll set that aside. Hey, cascade change too. That, yeah, the, the double check on it is worthwhile. So, yeah. The, for me, the iteration on foils I like overall because if you're going to continue to print this product, you've got to keep people interested in the product overall. And they had, what was it, almost six years of just non-foil cards, just regular cards and boosters, and they get foils. We get the star foils, and those look great, especially in the old border and how like overly saturated those colors are. And as borders change not your process, but what you do and how you handle your foils needs to change as well to kind of keep up with what you're doing with the game. You know, the super saturated borders didn't really work out well moving through Mirrodin. Your artifact foils look like white cards because the Mirrodin borders are very washed compared to iterative artifact borders moving forward. And so that process changed kind of slowly over time. In regards to just like rapid firing out versions of foils, uh, throughout I like that but not at the pace they're doing it because it feels like we're never given the opportunity as a group of players to say hey I really like this and I want to you know pick up on it we had masterpieces invocations and um, inventions all with different borders and they were all one and done essentially you know they were done in a block quote unquote and then we were done with those borders assumedly etched foils are going to continue and we have showcase versions for each set. So it's just like this constantly iterative product where they're never giving us enough time to really weigh in as a consumer and say, hey, this is what we like. That being said, 
the one thing I do like that we finally got to are the showcase borders, because that actually harkens back to something Watsu wanted to do with the first expansion, which was give the cards different backs based on the expansion. Well, it's been settled on that that will never happen, because if you're playing without yeah. sleeves, then you'll know. But you can do that with the front <clears throat> and change the frame based on the plane you're on, which is the expansion, which is they wanted to do. So something like that I enjoy, but I think it took us a little too long to get here. Although they did do it with the invocations, <clears throat> expeditions, and inventions, like I mentioned earlier. But I, I don't like how quickly things are changing because I never get the chance to enjoy anything, really. And if I want to play a bunch of foils in an EDH deck, I'm going to have disparate looks because they're just rapid-firing through these changes. I wish they would slow down and give the consumer a little bit of time to say with their wallets, we like this, not this. Or when they do those um, those feedback forms. There. So I like, and that's that's actually a good point. I like that they're changing it per plane. I wish though, like I really liked thematically when it was, all right, well, artifacts get this border, expeditions get this border. And you yeah. kind of had a little bit of cohesion there. Mm -hmm. I wish they would go for that. Yeah. Um, and go back to that rather than like, oh, here's a comic book plane or here's a metal plane. And like, all right, well, well can we get something thematically that ties them together? And that's just my OCD, like, speaking. Oh, that's just, yeah. I want all of the artifacts to have the same border that can type of thing or all of the creatures to have the same border that can. And I get that. But I, I kind of agree that, you know, that was cool and it's good. But I also just don't like the rapid constant yeah. change and um it's very difficult to test mul multiple variables in a single system so you make a good point with the comic book set right with Akoria. why did we have comic cards when we had godzilla art and uh full art like why did we have all of those in one set it makes it really difficult to as a consumer want to try and hone in on something and you kind of as watsy almost push people away from cracking packs for cards and just buying singles because it's so difficult to find the one version of the card you want while you're busting packs that you might you might as well just buy the singles buy and, single yeah and their their whales that they're targeting are not buying singles they're buying boxes so when you just kind of push people away from one both or all types of sealed product you're losing out overall and that's just because you're scattershotting all these ideas and you're not able to test if they want if they put each one in its own product that allows people to buy the products they want and they might buy two or three products to get cards in the style they want because they're able to target that type of card in that product yeah and i think it's just kind of ham-fisted that they're just scatter shotting all of this so i yeah i agree I, I do like that we're not like Yu-Gi-Oh and pokemon and we don't have like reverse and non-reverse and like four or five literal versions of the same card everything's a little different so you look at boring Clex, who just came out and you have set non-foil set foil uh showcase showcase foil and you don't have like inverse hollow of each one of those you don't have like eight different versions of the same card you have maybe four across all products so. and I, I think that's interesting because the four across all products type of thing is much more similar to what you see in like sports cards where yeah. you have five variations of a card and it's like four of them are numbered and one's the base but it's like all right here's consistency because year over year you get the same colors the same yeah. parallels and the same product which you don't get in pokemon necessarily you don't get in Yu-Gi-Oh really uh and i i wish that magic would go more towards that yep. like i was saying with like i loved loved the invention border that was insane mm -hmm. but uh, we're never getting it again no so uh, talking about foils leads us to our next you know, question, and this is a pretty big one recently, which is card quality overall. We don't mean in sense in the sense of, of development; we mean in the sense of printing and QC on that on that product overall. So, and, but another big topic, possibly with multiple facets. Your feelings? So, I think one of the most interesting things about the card quality, uh, obviously, it's awful. Yes. I, we're, we are getting less edible Pringles out of packs. Uh, we were talking in the Sick Deals admin chat the other day, and basically we were like, these they're not near mint anymore. We can't say they're near mint. They, they are literally not near mint out of the pack 
because the card quality is so bad, we have to say pack fresh, which isn't a condition. No. That doesn't exist. No. It's not a condition. So when you are getting cards out of the pack like that, that's bad enough. But then you add Jumpstart. And I cite Jumpstart specifically because if any of you are in any of the misprint groups or pay attention to that stuff, you know that Jumpstart had entire decks that were missing multiple layers of color, had awful ink splotches, just awful. Those misprints are so common that it's devaluing the misprint market that there are people who will pay more for a non-misprinted version because they think it's more scarce. That's ridiculous. You can't release a product with such low quality control because... I'm, I'm glad it was just Jumpstart. Don't get for me that, wrong. Yeah, because, yeah. yeah for, for that. But once that starts happening once, there's always the fear that it's going to happen again. And if people start losing faith in the quality of the product, if vendors start to be like, well, I mean, I can't really crack these for near mint singles anymore because they're all curled in half after three days. There was a, on Twitter... There was a thread going earlier, it was, uh, I think it was Miss Landrops, that basically was like, these cards have been out for a week and look how curled they are. I remember when Ultimate Masters came out, I cracked a box and just left it next to my bed because I cracked packs in bed. Look, it's, I had a problem, okay? Uh, and the next day, they were curled. Yeah. After 24 hours, they were already starting to curl for non-foils. And I just, I, the quality is just so bad and it has to improve. Mm -hmm. And I know that, you know, it's gotten particularly bad over the last couple of years and they are maybe contracts and stuff that they signed for printing, but they need to do something. Yes. I mean, it is just awful. I, yeah, uh, I agree. And I, this is a multifaceted problem. And I think it's also disjointed because the non-foil printings of all of this stuff generally pretty good what you'll see are like misalignments most of the times with the sheet and that's on carta because that means you know that cardboard sheet that rolled in didn't sit properly or something jostled the plate right and that came down and that happens more infrequently it seems than we have issues with foils overall and storing them properly so for foils you've got to look like i said starting with the cardstock and we know watsi has drop the quality of the cardstock. We've brought up on the cast before a lovely Reddit post from somebody who either worked with Watsi or worked with a contractor and talked about the paperweight and what was going on and what to expect from the, from the quality of the product overall. So you look at the foils and what's happening and it's seemingly a moisture issue that you can try and solve, but you shouldn't have to because these should just exist the same way that the old versions of these cards used to. Yeah, And then you also have this problem where Watsi wants to get creative with the way they're doing foils, front, back, edge, multi-layer, etc. And they have to work with Carta, who either has to uh, create brand new processes or use multiple processes to get this done. And now you have QC at both levels. You've got QC at Carta to verify that what they were actually able to do for Watsi worked in regards to the look of the foil. And then you have the longevity of the product, which is kind of on both because it starts with Watsi and their choice of uh, paper and their choice of uh, foil process is the wrong word here, but um, oh, that's a nice, nice So this, this, this top card is an Acoria foil. It is a foil planes. The bottom card is Aether Barrier. Look how straight that is comparatively. That's just an example. Sorry, I didn't. Oh, no, it's fine. So yeah. you know the the overall layering that you're going to be doing with this foil, if you want to do the front back stuff with the MDFCs, etc., all change the foil overall. And if Watsi's not taking this product that product back to just sit in the office and watch it over time, like people do with fucking Big Macs, to see how they <laughs> I don't know what you're doing. Like, it doesn't take that long to just put a bunch of cards out on a desk with a sign that says "Don't touch." Yeah, and I think that's. Part of the thing, too, is like you have added more steps to the process, so of course there's more potential points of failure. Mm -hmm. I get that. Yeah. But, I mean, how, like, Big Mac is an example. How many people touch a Big Mac along the way? Come on. That, how, many, how many thousands of orders does any individual McDonald's process every day, and how many of them actually get messed up? Not in a way that's like, oh, I uh, asked for no pickles. Yeah. You don't get it. your Big Mac doesn't come looking like a Pringle, you know. Yeah. And 
So that overall creates this interesting space going back up to foil specking up. If this is the way it's going to happen with foils and you don't have a humidifier or dehumidifier, whichever one is better for your environment and your foils to straighten them out, is it worthwhile to actually buy these for play or for specking? And now we have to look and say, okay, maybe it really isn't foils that are worthwhile anymore. It is the non-foils that are worthwhile because there will be no issues long-term with them. You don't have to worry about trying to flatten them out before you sell them. Because as a vendor, I'm not going to buy a card I can't sell. And if I can sleeve that card, put it in a deck, and just cut to it every time, I can't sell that to my players because that is an illegal card. Yep. That is not something you can use. So card quality, absolutely absolutely a real issue so uh, now the other side of card quality set design our cards quality right now in regards to their overall abilities and effect I'll field this one yes everything has gone up our highs are higher and our lows are also higher look at Amonkhet that was a reset set that was supposed to be the first set of new standard a drop in power overall that, car, that set still very powerful compared to things like Kamigawa <clears throat> Kamigawa was supposed to be a reset set and the, the power level of that was absolute garbage. With one exception. Uh, Jit. Yeah, Jite. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. It, that, that was in the block, not the... Yeah, yeah. Good call, good yeah. call. Um, and Kiki-Jiki. But neither here nor there. So, overall, I'm on Ket block, much higher power as a reset set, a low power set, than other low power sets in the past. So our floor is absolutely raised. And our highs are are also ridiculous. Watsi is just pushing as much as they can right now in regards to creatures and spells and making the game fun and interesting in combat, despite the fact that gameplay has suffered overall because of this. But at the same time, you can't have this one both ways my personal feeling you can't say hey the game's boring juice it and then say whoa you juiced it too much we need some boring again that's when you lose players and the game retracts as a whole so so i'm gonna say it hasn't improved right and the reason i'm gonna say that is because of the amount of standard bands we tweeted it out earlier hallelujah we don't have to change yeah. this beautiful bnr graphic if set design was improving we would have that multiple year period where we didn't have a whole lot of bands we didn't yeah. have to ban anything because everything was fair and balanced. I think it was Sam Black that said, you know, wizard set design used to shoot for a five or a six with cards. Mm -hmm. And occasionally they'd hit, you know, a nine or a ten. Well, now they're shooting for eights and nines and they're hitting a bunch of twelves and thirteens. Mm -hmm. And I think that, I mean, maybe it's not set design. Maybe it's playtesting. But somewhere along the line, it feels to me like there's a little bit of a breakdown. But I, I think that's, if you think the design is make stuff better, like more powerful, then yes, yes I yeah. agree completely. I, I think it it's is way better. Two sides of the same coin. You can't yeah. have great set design without also having really good play testing. And so when things fall through and are just obvious problems, or you see them tossed out on a BNR the internal dialogue about a card and how there are like questions about whether or not it's too powerful and somebody's like, ah, fuck it, run it. Or we need another, we need a second toughness on Deathrite Shaman because of some inane card that nobody plays in standard. You know, like that's an absolute breakdown of the process when, when you're looking at both sides of playtest and overall design. I was just coming at this from a, a design uh, perspective. Yeah. So it's really nice to hear, you know, the just kind of not necessarily counterpoint but like hey there's more to it than just like make a bunch of eights you know yeah a primary example sahili cat how does anyone miss sahili cat yeah within 30 seconds of that card being spoiled uh, reddit was all over it the internet hive mind was all over that and you expect me to believe that professionals who play this game for a living didn't notice that and play testing get out of here guys that's ridiculous yeah so i think yeah, I think the there's an arms race internal to Watsi, and but and design is absolutely lapping playtesting right now, so we have this out of balance kind of thing. It's like a weird tilt a whirl where design is just running the show and playtesting is trying to catch up. But I like that, like if they were more, pro, it doesn't matter proactive or reactive. I don't care about their BNRs. Things would have been a lot easier as well. You know, they gave. Uh, Omnath a little too much of a leash, but I did like that they eventually 
yanked it. I yeah. think it went on a little too long. Same thing with Wilderness Wreck that, and Teferi. That interaction went on a little too long than it necessarily should have, and they probably should have ended that about six months before they did. Teferi and Reflector Mage kind of similarly. They just waited yeah. until like the heydays of the format, and they were like, ah, you know what, we probably should have done this before. And to me, that's also a sign of things that have just kind of gone wrong overall, where the, yeah. the other part of this process monitoring the formats for these cards broke down. And I think it's all part of a, a learning curve that, that they still have to go through if they do truly want to design eights and nines instead of fives and sixes. So, yeah. Stepping away from design, we're going to hit on another very popular topic. So, uh, well, for us, yeah, it's an interesting question. All things equal. Every format was played the same, meaning at the paper level, supported by Watsi. What format would you primarily deal with? See, this one's hard for me. So I love, love playing Legacy. Mm -hmm. But I love playing it with 10 friends and at big events. So I don't think that would be the format I would primarily deal with. Honestly, mm -hmm. I would primarily deal with Modern. I think if it was all played equal, same level of support, everything, because I have, there is so much less art involved. There is so much less nuance because you don't have to worry about like everything's getting reprinted all the time. So sell it as quick as you want. There's not as much specking in that format. You know, you can spec on penny stocks, obviously, just like any format. But, you know, in Legacy, I have to worry about Fatal Push becoming the preeminent removal, and then all of a sudden, True Name Nemesis is even better than it was before, mm -hmm. and then that card starts to spike, and it's like, well, I, you know, whereas Modern, you don't have to hold anything. You just get rid of it. You don't yeah. have to hold your TNNs for when they're good or anything. You just constantly flip all of it. Yep. And I think, based on the way things are going, and we may touch on this in a later question, uh, the shelf life of EDH is getting shorter if the financial aspects continue to go the direction they are going. If we continue to have $1,000 near mint volcanic island buy lists overseas, we will not have paper EDH as we know it. So I would go for modern. Okay. I had a feeling you would just because it seems... It's a little more wide open overall. You know, you don't, you have tier lists, so to speak, but it just seems like you jive with uh, modern more so than anything else. Uh, yeah. Personally, when I when I read this and I was thinking about it, for me, it's kind of uh, two aspects. What formats would I rather deal with? I love vending events where there will be legacy played. So from a vendor perspective, I would love to deal with uh, legacy and vintage. I just, Those players are just great to deal with. Absolutely, and I also just like the formats as well. Like there, there's nuance to them absolutely, in gameplay, and then there's nuance to counterplay in regards to what you're going to do with your deck. And I love just watching that churn over time because the the joke about Legacy was it's the most powerful spells from like the first three years of Magic and the most powerful creatures from the last three years of Magic, and it's this really interesting bookended format like that. And Vintage is just like everybody's throwing hand grenades. Yeah, it really is. And I, I like learning about the formats from players and picking their brains behind the booth. And I like, to me, legacy booth setting is a challenge because you have to ensure that you're going to cater to the entire audience, not just like the tier one and tier two players. You've got to make sure you have something for everybody because something somebody's going to be building like the uh, Aluren uh, Mystical, what the hell is the griffin miss hollow griffin combo deck yeah. so you gotta have like that weird bulk rare and some pseudo bulk uncommon so they can combo off properly right and succeeding in that challenge i like i like knowing that like i predicted the cards and the ratios we needed because it's this weird puzzle i can put together yeah vintage is completely different for me in that regard and they just unbanned Luris, so that's going to be a shit show but i would love to work that event 
in regards to yeah. play. I really like Legacy because it's open-ended, and sometimes there are just great gotchas. Like, I sacrificed my lands matchup at SCG Philly, so I had Storm under control with uh, five copies of Pyrostatic Pillar in my main and another two in the board, and opening on them in the dark against Storm was great for the Game 1 concessions. Oh, man. I'm not aware. Uh... Blue-Black Reanimator, like, I don't know, there's... There, there's a lot of really good gotcha moments in that format, yeah. and that's definitely, like, when it comes to playing, I agree. That's the one I do, bar none, hands down. Forget every other format. Yeah. Uh, but vending, yeah, I think I'd go more modern. Because, yeah. like, there's a little bit of me that's afraid if I just vended exclusively Legacy, I would start to hate it. Like, yeah. when you when you have chefs that, like, they're professional chefs, and they get home, and they're like, I just fix ramen. Yeah, I don't. yeah. I, I hate it now, and I used to love it. Like that's that's kind of my fear with legacy. I yeah uh, I can I can see that, and I understand that. That's why, like I said, for me, the challenge is more setting the booth than betting those yeah. events. Yeah. I, if if I had to sit at the front of the the booth, I can under I can see myself kind of getting tired of it instead of like working the binders all weekend. That might be a little more pleasant or buying, but yeah, too much of yeah. a good thing can sour it. Absolutely. Um, I know it's it's an interesting question because we talk about those formats a lot in regards to play and vent, but not really you know uh, speculating. For for that regard, and for me, it's always been legacy. I've always wanted yeah. to play legacy. I've always wanted to be able to own legacy so I could play what I wanted. That was the format when it was one point five that really kind of sh- showed me that I don't have an affinity to strategy or colors or anything like that. I'm happy to play whatever appeals to me. I just want the ability to play it yeah and by doing that and learning the format and playing what i liked and doing well enough to pick up other odds and ends i just kind of happened into you know a lot of the position that i'm in so for me those two and then handbrake 180 we're going to talk about (laughs) shipping so interesting question uh preferred shipping supplies brands sleeves what do you got? So, and it's obviously kind of difficult now because they're in such short supply, but uh, I just Ultra Pro top loaders inside team bags for sleeves. I actually prefer Dragon Shields. If it's just one card, always Dragon Shields. Yep. Uh, if it's a small number of cards, like five or less, always Dragon Shields. If it's more than that, I perfect fit. Does it raise my cost through the roof? Yes. Absolutely. But I also have the peace of mind of knowing that every card is going to get there protected, relatively safe, etc. You know, and stark contrast to that, I prefer the paper bubble mailers to the plastic ones, so not quite water resistant. Mm. Um, Pro tip to anyone that's like having shipping delays or anything with shipping stuff out, at least over the last two months, I've had incredibly good results with FedEx compared to USPS. Okay. It's a little bit more expensive, but I also had to issue five figures in refunds in January because USPS lost a bunch of stuff, and it's still not there in the middle of February. So peace of mind is, like, to me, it's one of those things where, like, I'll pay a little bit extra, I'll cut into my margins a little bit, just because I know it's going to get there, it's going to get there safe, well-packaged, secured everything else but yeah i i much prefer you know ultra pro on the non-sleeves sleeves go for dragon shield always i use them to play with of course i'm gonna use them to store the cards yeah yeah i I do sleeves upside down into top loader tape top loader top loader into envelope tape envelope (laughs) send out yeah the only time (laughs) that really changes is if i need a bubble mailer and if i'm doing that that generally means that i'm sending a lot of cards out to uh most likely a buy list. So I'll actually use USPS supplies because I don't want to fuck around okay. and find out. Yeah. And I think their bubble mailers are insulated to some degree. But at that point, it's like brick of cards uh, with a top loader behind them inside a team bag uh, taped inside the, the bubble mailer or... If it's a large enough order, I have those a bunch of shitty Ultra Pro deck boxes, like the <laughs> yeah. super like mono the quarter ones, or yeah, whatever that you find in the bins, yeah, yeah, exactly. Those those, those are great. Yeah, from like buys Absolutely. and stuff. And if I'm submitting to buy a list, all I need to do is you know make sure everything in there is sealed, sorted, and my order number is somewhere in there, and then it, it's good to go. 
the USPS bobble mailers come in sizes large enough to handle at least two of those. And yeah. I'm pretty much good to go. I have sent out one rose before, and that's not a harrowing experience, but that is a lot of shipping tape just to make sure that one, it stays closed, and two, again, nobody fucks around and I find out. Uh, one thing I have noticed a lot more of, and I actually admire the ingenuity of, is in a time of COVID and a top loader drought, the squarely cut piece of cardboard in a team bag with a card. Now, I don't remember what seller did this, but if you could please remember to put this card in a sleeve next time, because I think there's a pube inside of this that has now touched this decimate, so I can't do anything with it. Thanks. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> that is both awesome and hilarious. Yeah. All right. um, before we cut out, I think we've got time for one last question that should uh, hopefully end us on a high note, not a, a sour note, and something more relatable. So, we've talked about this a lot the shelf life or lifespan on magic as a whole so and this this is something i touched on earlier when i was like we may touch on this on a later question um i think if the current financial trends continue the shelf life shortens because i don't think the majority of players will support edh as long as the reserve list exists. Okay. Uh, once you have not just a thousand dollar like buy list, but you're looking at like twelve hundred for a near mint and a thousand for an LP buy number. Like if I have to drop a grand mm -hmm. as a player to get a volcanic to get access to this format, eh, forget it. Yeah. And I, I understand there's shocks, there's substitutes, there's things you can do that they're doing. But I'm worried about how that ripples outward. Obviously, Legacy is dead. Yes. I hate I to say it. Hey, great. You unbanned a whole bunch of cards. That doesn't matter because the format's dead, except on Moto, which we'll also touch on later. Uh, I think that vendors are starting to notice that, you know, hey, this quality control isn't exactly great. Uh, the product isn't as good as it used to be. And the LGSs seem to be getting squeezed pretty hard right now with a lot of this stuff. And I think that that's, as the LGS goes, so too does Magic. And I'm not sure if Hasbro and its infinite toy shop wisdom understands that the reason places like KB Toys closed and places like Target and Walmart persist is that they have, like, the small guys got crushed out. And I am afraid, like, I think, last year I said five years. I think at most we're looking at four, realistically, a little bit closer to three. I'll probably eat my hat on that one. That's fine. I have plenty of them. But I don't think that it has that long left, especially with the emergence of, like, other card games taking over, not just as, like, something to play, but as a financial vehicle. I think Argent Saga had a lot of opportunity, except COVID, mm -hmm. and then it didn't happen. Yep. Um, but I, I think we are much closer to the end of Magic's life than we are to the beginning. Okay. That's, that, that's an interesting way to look at it. Uh, the way I, I, I looked at this, because we have, as you, you know, mentioned, a question about Moto coming up next week. I looked at this more as paper Magic, not necessarily Magic as a whole. Yeah, and, I, I, yeah, I agree. And I think that Magic will definitely survive as a game, but I think that the, the era that we're in of the modern non-rotating format, starting with Pioneer, moving forward, is the digital age of Magic, and that's where we will begin finding all of these formats. Yeah. Period ended. Pioneer will eventually, it is going to appear on Arena. We're getting uh, Pioneer Masters this year on Arena. And so to me, the question that exists now is what happens to the Magic Fest and the Mythic Championship? The uh, the PAX Opens and things like that that WotC did. The PAX Opens, I, I guess that question answers itself. That's all on Arena. But the yeah. in-person play, the large-scale events... You know, what happens with those? And to me, that's really the question mark. I think this game 
persists for as long as it's going to make money for Hasbro, and then the we when the wheels fall off the gravy train, we'll see all hell break loose. And I don't know when that is, but I don't see that forthcoming for the game as a whole. You know, changes to paper are what they're going to be, and we've talked about possibilities if they wanted to move everything to arena then you can just literally cut the draft chaff out of sets and just gas them for paper play i don't need three different versions of gray ogres in my set if i'm going to be cracking packs for paper tournament play that isn't draft you know that kind of stuff there's a lot of opportunity to move magic forward physically while also catering to a digital landscape for all of your large events and that's where i think we're heading faster than the end of the game. That being said, there there is always the opportunity that the magic killer does rise up, just like every few years, a new MMORPG rises up to be the WoW killer. Something will hasn't happened eventually. yet. No, but some, but things do get close. Yeah, and it really is to get to kill magic. I think it's less about the poor handling, the poor design, the QC and more about a stagnation in the game that makes something else so much more appealing for the casual and the pros alike that everybody yeah. starts jumping ship. And I don't I don't foresee that part coming. Yeah, I, I think that's going to be one of the interesting things as well is how magic evolves in response to that. Because so far, I mean, yeah, there's been the perennial, oh, this is a magic killer, when something actually happens that legitimately threatens it, that, you know, the company doesn't mess up like they did with WoW, uh, how does Magic adjust to that? How does Wizards of the Coast or Hasbro say, you know what, this is this is a real threat. We need to do something about this. Because Pokemon has, like, coexisted for ages. Yep. You know, that's that's been fine. That's completely different. But Yu-Gi-Oh! as well, that game, oh, that game's existed on the side. Yep. Yeah. Uh, L5R to a lesser degree. There are a lot of these other competitors in the space, especially as was it Fantasy Flight created the idea of the living card game. Yeah. Right. Just to make it easier, just to try and pull players from wherever. Like, hey, you don't have to worry about cracking packs to try and hit that card or buying singles. You just buy one set, and now you have everything. Yeah. But their failure wasn't on the model; it was the game itself. Yeah. Netrunner was played it, and it's okay. It's not fantastic fine but yeah I, I think that'll be interesting to see for sure um, but yeah I, I agree I think that you said it very accurately the digital age is what we're in now we're no longer you know that's what's going to happen with magic it will survive digitally I just don't think it you know gets there on paper unfortunately yeah and, and I think that that's fine too because if this is the way they want to go, this is the way they want to go. And really, I, you know, with the way that uh, U.S. inoculations have been going for COVID, there's a very slim chance we get events before summer 2021. So Watsy can just put all the logistics for this year essentially on the back burner and maybe yeah. not even do anything. And at that point, they have a question to ask themselves, okay, in 2022, do we even want to have a single paper event? and then they can determine what they want to do with the Magic Fest and Mythic Championships. And maybe it turns into, uh, you know, an anime-style convention and less an actual play experience where you yeah. have panels and you have artists and it becomes more about celebrating the medium than it becomes celebrating the game itself. And, and I'm sure they could bang it out of the park as long as they actually follow guidelines and guide rails put forth by other um, conventions. But we'll see in probably nine months ish yeah. yeah that's next november. maybe sooner actually yeah well nine months is november and we should have an idea of what 2022 is going to look like well before that but yeah i'm just overshooting in case all right so we'll save the last four questions that we have for next week because they're all pretty heady overall and we can just jump straight to picks and since you went first last week i'm going to go first this week and, go for it uh, my pick is a yet another lord for EDH thanks to Masquerade Nexus and uh, the new upcoming Innistrad set. And we are looking at Captivating Vampire this week. And this is a card that I've had on my radar for a fairly long time. And we are finally starting to see 
the bump that I just kind of expected through natural demand. Now, uh, EDH playability overall, super, super low. It's Vampire Tribal, but moving forward with the release of Maskwood Nexus, we could just see Maskwood Nexus Tribal, which is basically just taking the best lords possible and slam jamming them all in one deck. To do that, you're basically looking yep. for lords with the best activated or triggered abilities, and I do like Captivating Vampire because it is reminiscent of the Legion or Onslaught era uh, pseudo lords like Skirk Fire Marshal, a card I picked a while ago, where you uh, tap five untapped goblins you control and just deal 10 damage to everything. Captivating Vampire, I'll bring up the stocks graph again. Tap five untapped vampires you control, gain control of target creature, it becomes a vampire in addition to its other types. There is no end clause on this, you just gain control of it, period, ended. So you can just start stealing things, which makes this pretty good card in Masquid Nexus Tribal or just Vampire Tribal with more support. Now, uh, format information right now, again, super limited to Vampire Tribal. Uh, it basically survives on its activated ability and being one of the only lords that actually pumps all vampires. You do see this essentially in Edgar Markov decks, the end. But, and before this, uh, this past weekend when we got images of the boxes for the upcoming Innistrad vampire and werewolf sets my thought was we get ahead of this we buy in now and we look to flip on the way into that set yeah so we are behind overall in terms of buying before the spike because it started to just kind of happen overall but there's still time to get in before the focus of the quote-unquote new releases shifts to this Innistrad set we have two sets before it and a sup at least one supplemental to look at so we're still in a really good place and with the current slow rise in price of Captivating Vampire, my expectation is that speculative demand on this card will pick up shortly after the D&D spoilers start. So we go to Strixhaven, then D&D, and then it's time for Innistrad, and that's when people will finally be ready to kind of look at this card. So from there, if there's no reprint in the Innistrad set, we should be looking at a six-month minimum turnaround on this to sell into the organic demand and not just the speculative demand that we will be seeing on this card. There's a very real opportunity to sell into that speculative demand if you're able to buy in now, and that shifts the window to probably about four months from about sixth. So yeah. if you if you want to buy in this card and you want to get out definitively out of profit without worrying about reprints, that's kind of your window four to six. If you're fine sitting on them, because the, the price on this card, when I just drag the stocks graph out, it is a little bit all over the place um, at A25 because we saw a reprint in 2017 in the Commander decks, but it's it climbed naturally, it dipped with the reprint, and it's been coming back up. I'd be fine holding on to these through a reprint, and if you're fine doing that, then your timeline's like nine plus months. So uh, I'm sticking with this one, and I'm finally glad it started to pick up, and because of that organic demand, I feel a lot better about moving into this now than I did before. I wasn't sure why I was just stagnate forever heading into Innistrad Vampires, but it is what it is. I, I like it because it's this tap five other, like the tap other creatures is something that I feel oh, like... It's not other. Oh yeah, it is tap five untapped. Okay, yeah. so tap like Azami, for example, this one, the other lords like you Fire, touched yeah, on. I think this is the type, like, it's not something they do a whole lot. No. They don't do a whole lot of it because it's so like it's not really convoluted for the rules but people don't understand that it gets around summoning sickness yes and it creates a little bit of confusion among new players mm -hmm. and i think that that's part of one of the reasons they're a little bit more reticent to do stuff like this um so i think you know if if we see a reprint of captivating vampire it'll be in another core set it'll be in a commander deck i don't think we'll necessarily see it in return to twilight no. Return to return to twilight. Return yeah. to return to return to return. Is this our third or fourth? Uh, our, th our third time on Innistrad. Yeah. But, yeah. No, you're you're absolutely right. It's something I thought about, and I was like, you know, what? this isn't as confusing as Skirk Fire Marshal, where you can actually, because you can tap Fire Marshal, you can stack that trigger. You can hold Prio, yeah. and put four copies of that trigger on the stack and deal forty to everything. Skirk Fire Marshal doesn't need to be on the board when the ability resolves. They just all go mm -hmm. on the stack. We're yeah. definitely not seeing that card in a standard set. And that's a good call out to make. It being non-intuitive that you can tap it 
to its own ability because it does not require you to tap this card to activate the ability. It's an ability of a card that asks you to tap a creature. It's a weird way to explain it. I, I have a yeah. very difficult time doing this as a judge as well, and I didn't think about that. It's a good call out. Uh, before the, I let you have your pick, though, I will note uh, the set foil is being bought for less than the non-foil by Card Kingdom. They are buying uh, the non-foil at four dollars. Sorry, four thirty. They're buying the foil at four. Was this one of the ones that was like the front foil in a starter deck or something? Maybe that's the only thing I can think of. Uh, I don't remember Core Twenty Eleven that well. I wasn't playing. Yeah, I don't that much either. around then. Um, I honestly couldn't tell you if this was around Zendikar release. This card wasn't even in the Red Black Vampire deck. That kind okay. of yeah. Took, yeah. That tried to like rise to ascendancy after the JTMS ban, but before rotation when it was mainly just Balakut in that format. Like this was an. You played Nocturnus instead because it was a better yeah. board, but I don't remember if anybody cared about this card. Yeah, I don't remember either. So. Oh, well. All right, so my pick. Uro. Base Uro. Regular. Non-foil. Not extended art. Uro Titan of Nature's Wrath. This card just got banned. People are going to be dumping it. Uh, price is already trending down on TCG. I'm sure you could probably, you know post up in some group hey i'm buying unlimited arose for five ten whatever this card's great long term this card's awesome in edh and if it's banned like this in multiple formats i don't think they're going to reprint it anytime so go for it cards gas yeah i mean it is still legal in legacy and granted there's not a whole lot of decks that can afford the escape cost with Astrolabe gone. And Oko. Thank you, Watsi. It was just a year and a half too late, you mongoloids. Uh, I think it's great. I think that historically, what you've seen with banned and restricted cards like this, yes, they get banned and the price tanks immediately, but when they're powerful enough, the price always recovers. As long as you have playability in some eternal format like EDH, yep. you're able to do it forever. And I think that this is a prime opportunity for that. I think you wait probably about a week mm-hmm. is when we'll hit the low. Because right now you have some people panic selling, sure. But there's a lot of people that know by now you don't sell the day of. You wait until the market settles a little bit. Uh, especially because with this card, it's more recent. It's not like Mox Opal, where you had people that had their play sets playing Affinity for years before Urza came and got the card banned. Yeah. Um, I, I think that it's just a good, probably you're looking at a longer term hold here. I, I, mm. I agree with that. Uh, you know, Mopal didn't recover to $30 until, you know, about a couple months ago. Uh, and people were happy to sell them for 25 mm-hmm. when it got banned, or 20 or I yeah. picked some up for 10 to 15 because... I'm done with this format. I've played Affinity for years, and Wizards just banned my deck out of nowhere because they're bad at magic. Uh, so I think you're looking at probably around a 12 to 16 month turnaround for this, so it is a little bit longer. But if you pick them up at like 5 to $10, I don't see how you can lose on this long term. Would I go super deep? No. no. I'd probably get like 10 to 20 at most. I'm not stacking them like I'm stacking circuits on ceilings, which one day will happen. But... I think it's a solid all-around, and I think that generally, buying in on cards when they get banned immediately is always a good idea, because people are going to panic sell, they just want to get rid of it, you're going to be able to pay too little money for it, yep. and there will come a time where that price recovers. Uh, yeah, absolutely, and I, I think it's good to note that cards that get banned and it's effectively erased from constructed magic, generally speaking, show up in EDH in time. You know, look at Birthing Pot, look at Splinter Twin. Those cards have a price tag because of EDH Birthing Pot a little bit more because it's just better in the format as a whole. Read and the political prisoner. I, if you're right. Uh, I would expect Uro to follow the Birthing Pot trend more than the Splinter Twin trend and definitely hold a price tag for EDH based on power level within EDH and the 99 and the general itself. The only question that, that I have, and you answered it in your timeline, 12 to 18 months from now is about three to nine months after rotation of Uro. So Uro rotates at Q4 2021, right? So that's about seven to eight months right now where Uro is just going to float around, circling the the drain, essentially. And 
I don't know if it's going to cost less now or heading into rotation. Stuff like this I don't often track because usually I'm already holding those banned cards. I've been hoisted on almost every banning in Modern because I play competitive decks. So my, my Birthing Pods are dead, my Splinter Twins are dead, my Mox Opals are dead, my Faithless Lootings are dead, but they'll never pry Tron from my cold dead hands. That's the only thing I gotta say. Uh, they keep too. <laughs> yeah, that's what's keep. They they banned my Simeon Spirit Guide, so I ad nauseum's off the table right now. Yeah, Maybe. that was another one. So, I, I like the idea of picking up banned cards, especially ones that have power. It's never uh, a bad idea overall. Like parallel to Uro, now we have Oko just banned, basically uh, out of the yeah. game, and that card is ostensibly one of the most powerful planeswalkers ever printed. You know, it allows Black Lotus to kill. We've seen it. Yeah. And so this is also kind of an interesting topic to think about as well. When we Every now and then when we talk about financial strategy, moving in on cards that are banned either immediately afterwards and not necessarily looking to like get people who are panic selling, but just buying into cards that have this history of power and are obviously powerful and have the ability to retrace their price graphs in terms of upward trend in time if you're fine putting down the money and sitting on them for long enough. Yeah. You know, you can get in on, you know, obviously more non-foils than foils, but you can go, you know, wide across the the category with Uro because it has the showcase printing, you know, we just got the the call time secret layer that has Uro in it. And I think this is a really good example of a card that is obviously powerful, is just banned, you're able to buy in cheap now and represents a fairly decent hold over time as long as that fits your financial model. And yeah. it doesn't happen it's, all the time. Got Oh, I was gonna say it's just like the cards that everyone says, Oh, this just needs one card to be printed to be good. Yeah. Well, I the thing is once it's banned, you already know it's good. It doesn't need another card to be printed. Mm-hmm. It's already good. Yep. And this is obviously not too good for EDH, so we know it has life there. EDH will yeah. breathe life into this card. So I I like the pick overall. I, I was prepared to fight you on this, but because <laughs> I didn't think it would tank this hard, and I just didn't think about long-term effects. So uh, I'm, I'm glad we had the conversation about it. And like I said, it, it presents an interesting avenue for financial gain when you're looking into banned and restricted announcements and what you want to do around there instead of waiting for an unban or an unrestriction and trying to buy and then sell into that hype the reverse is possible waiting for the ban buy into the fire sale and then hold on the obvious power so yeah definitely way to go but i think that is going to be it for this week we'll be back next week with the last of those questions and then shortly thereafter, I think we start getting spo- more spoilers because we're never not getting spoilers. Ever. Ever. But for MTG Cabalcast, which can be found on Twitter, Patreon, Facebook, YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher, Audible, Apple Podcast, and Google Podcast, I am Halt, I am Reptar, and you are? At Thirsty Sister. We'll see you guys next week. <laughs>